Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to January the 22nd, 2013. 2013 was the year that I moved to Nine Mile Farm. In fact, this would be one of, not the, not the first show, but one of the first shows um, after that move was officially made. Again, January 22nd, 2013, so we're going back about six years now. And uh, it's interesting to me to think about that because, you know, this this week, the reason we're doing Rewinds is I'm sitting here with, like, 60-odd members of the TSP community on this property six years into this journey, and so many things have happened, and so many things that we've done here have worked really well. And so many things that we tried to do here didn't work out so well. We're making some major transitions uh, going through this winter, and we'll be talking more about those in future episodes of the show, uh, moving to more of a nut tree overstory just for one thing. And, and that's more of an acceptance that this property simply cannot support the volume of trees that I want to grow without irrigation, and I can only do so much irrigation with the well pump I have. That it, like No matter what we do, there's a limitation there. And that has a lot to do with the evolving meaning of a self-sufficient lifestyle, which is what today's episode uh, was all the way back six years ago. The evolving meaning of a self-sufficient lifestyle was originally episode 1059 of the show. We're now up over 2,500 episodes. Uh, and we're doing more and more now on this property toward greater and greater self-sufficiency with less and less work. In fact, this week we're putting in gardens that are going to, you know, add to our production. But we've actually gotten to a level here, despite some of the, the, the failures, where a lot of these gardens that I'm probably installing right now with people as you're listening to this. If not, I'll be doing it tomorrow, depending on what day you're listening to this. Um, a great deal of what we're going to plant in there are going to be like perennial flowers, perennial herbs. Like calorie wise uh, and, and consumption wise, uh, from foods that you know we produce in our backyard, we're we're a little bit tapped out. We had to struggle this week um, to just to cut up and get into the freezer peppers from our last pepper harvest before the first frost hit. My, Dorothy and I went out. We had three pots full of peppers just at the end. Like that's not all. See, it's just at the end. It's like okay, we got to pick them. We don't pick them, it's going to freeze, and they're all going to get ruined. And, and, I mean, so we have come a long, long way despite some failures, and I thought that would be one reason that this would be interesting. Um, also, though, I think that as you listen to today's show, and I think this was true of yesterday's show, I didn't point it out in the new intro yesterday, that if you've listened to me over the years, especially if you've listened to me, let's say, in the last couple of years, These episodes I chose this week, up till today anyway, tomorrow's a much more recent episode, really highlight some of the evolution in my thinking and my mindset. Like even this episode, though, it will be a lot of what we still talk about. You'll be able to pick out some things and go, Jack's not so much on that anymore. And I think that's important, too, that like one of the advantages of being a podcaster is when you say back in 2011 I said and somebody's like bullshit you can be like well 
let me go find this. And like having a big audience too, sometimes you don't have time to find it. Like, hey, anybody remember about it? I said, like two days later, somebody emailed you. It's right here and it's at, you know, 45 minutes and 37 seconds in. And you can go, see, see, and then, you know, then crickets from the person that says you're full of it. But the, the other advantage is to be able to say, well, here's what I got wrong. And to go back and look at it yourself. And I learned so much I got wrong in this episode because it's not, you know, when you're talking about things like being self-sufficient, we're all doing the best that we can. It's not like a, a prediction, like by this year, this thing will happen in the political clown circus. It's, it's much more of an opinion. But to, to realize that that opinion has been modified by not what someone told you, but by actually taking that opinion, turning it into action, taking those actions and receiving those results and going, hmm. And a lot of times it's not even a failure. It's like, okay, this worked. But when we look at work, how well it worked relative to the work and energy that we put into it, maybe there's better ways to spend our time and energy and our money. So there's a, there's a lot of good in this episode or I want to pick it, but there is some places we'd be like, hey, he doesn't do that anymore or he does that differently or he feels differently about that now. I thought maybe that'd be good for some of y'all long-timers. And uh, I do think this will be a fun episode, and it's a good, it's a good episode to just kind of look at like, what are you doing for your self sufficiency, and what can you start planning as we head into kind of the downtime of, of of the holidays and winter, because this is actually a time of the year when you can get a lot of things done that you otherwise don't have time to do. I know for me it definitely is. I think. Maybe for us in the South, that's more true because we actually get a lot of really nice days. But even a lot of things that you know can't really be done outside because it's too cold can be done in a shop or something like that this time of year where there's just more, it just seems like there's more time freedom in the winter, for me anyway. And we are headed headlong into that. Anyway, got one more rewind coming up for you tomorrow. And uh, then I will be back Monday with an after-action review on this workshop, which I'm sure will be amazing. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the rewinds this week. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and roll on back. January 22nd, 2013, originally episode 1059, The Evolving Meaning of a Self-Sufficient Lifestyle. We're going to talk about today, because what I'm going to talk about is how to be more self-sufficient uh, in the modern age. And I did what I did with getting an office while we were you know, spending most of our time here, because it was the only way to make it work. Um, I just couldn't get the internet connection that I needed to where our homestead was to be able to do the show. Well, the show's my business, right? So, you know, I went to having to drive to an office every day, and, and now I'm not going to have to do that anymore. I'm giving something up for that, especially, and I've, I've seen this more in the south, uh, especially the southwest, south central United States, than I do in the northeast. In the northeast, it seems like there's a lot of places that seem like they are absolutely in the middle of flipping nowhere, And you can still get high-speed internet. Down south, it seems, you move just a little bit outside of these towns and these rural communities, and it's over. There is, you know, you're lucky you get electricity in some areas still around here. You get electricity only because of the law that made them put phone service in, so there was infrastructure to put the electrical lines on. And you want water, you got a well. You want a sewer, you got to put in a septic system. I mean, and you want high-speed internet, you either use satellite or you get nothing, and it just doesn't work for a business. So when we're relocating this time, I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. 
that I can take the rental cost of the of the, the office and the underlying cost of a mortgage and combine them and end up right back where I was financially but not have to drive to an office every day and not spend the money on fuel and not be dependent on somebody else because let's say my landlord at the end of my lease decided we don't want to rent to you anymore, right? So it just seemed to make sense to consolidate back. And, and, and I want you to think about that. One, because it's a landmine, or landmine, almost not a landmine, a landmark event for the show. It's another turning in our history, another evolution in the history of the Survival Podcast, going from car to home office to big office back to a home office uh, and, and moving forward the entire time. But because it's going to fit well with the concepts that I'm going to give you today. And that's why I want to tell you that like the first thing that we need to do if we want to build self-sufficiency in our lives today is not turn our back on technology. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, especially when I talk to people who are big into primitive skills and things like that, that people will crap on the concept of the GPS and say, I don't need a GPS. I don't use technology. Really, what do you use? All I can use a sun compass. That's technology. That is technology. It's a technology that changed the way people navigate. I navigate with stellar navigation. Great. That's also technology. That's where we got a little device called the sextant from. You know, and they say, well, my technology is not dependent on, your, te your technology, if you're using a sun compass, is dependent on the sun shining, right? And, and, and that's about as reliable as whether or not a GPS is going to work. Now, am I suggesting that it's not a good idea to learn how to build and use a sun compass or learn how to just have some basic stellar navigation with a bearing on the north star is always north and how to identify it if you're in, you know, far enough into the northern hemisphere where you can see the daggone thing? No. Um, Am I saying in any way that we should avoid primitive skills, hard skills, how to build a fire uh, from friction fire, from using a friction fire sled to using a hand drill, a bow drill, a flint and steel, anything like that? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying much like when you were in school, right? when you were in grade school, like, like first grade, second grade, like way down back in the deep recesses of your mind if you're an older person like me, you know, in your 40s or, or older, um, Try to think back and remember one of the first things that you had to do in mathematics was learn how to memorize addition, subtraction, and once you did that, then it was multiplication and division, 1 through 12. That was kind of the core. And once you could do that, then they could say, let me show you how to do a complex multiplication problem like 43 times 15. And you take this, and you add a zero, and you make two lines, and you add them back together. But everything you needed to know was built into that learning your times and multiplication, addition, subtraction up to 12. And you might have wondered, why do I have to memorize all this crap? But then when you see it put together, if anybody bothered to explain it to you when you were a kid, other than you need to learn because I said so, right? If anybody explained it, you start to realize that this, this is like the building blocks, right? And then you would learn division. It's a little more complicated, long division and remainders, and you get a decimal or a fraction, fractions and decimals and back and forth. But it still came down to, if you knew this this basic formula, of knowing addition, subtraction, multiplication, and, and division, 1 through 12, you were good to go. You could do anything. You could do anything because everything is built on that. Then one day, somebody dropped into your hot little hand a calculator, and you started being able to do things that would take you five minutes before in five seconds. But let me tell you something. There's two things that work there. One, if the calculator dies or somebody takes it away, you can still get the answer. 
And two, by knowing the mechanical procedure behind the operation, you're much faster and efficient with the calculator. And when you do something in error with the calculator and it doesn't make sense, your mind tells you, I need to do that one again. That one doesn't make sense. Then later in life, maybe you found a little program called Excel with a spreadsheet in it. And then you started being able to add up entire columns left and right, fill things in in sequential order, build your own formulas. But all of this went back to the basics. And that's how we have to look at self-sufficiency and technology. It's great to be able to get into a car that tells you where the nearest restaurant is that you like and how to get there. But you should be able to do it on foot if you have to. And that's the world we need to live in. The people that say all technology sucks, let me put it to you this way. When the Native Americans first started having conflicts with the white man, they looked at his firearms and said, our bows are superior. But they became a much more lethal force when they kept using their bows and their knives and their clubs and added to it the white man's firearms. It became a much more deadly enemy. If you want to fight a battle, and in, in many instances, when it comes to trying to be self-sufficient in this world, we are fighting a battle. We're fighting a battle with a society that has told us to just embrace everything new and let go of everything else and let somebody else fix your problems for you. Give away your independence and liberty in exchange for security and convenience. So if you're going to fight that battle... You have to use the foundational building blocks, the traditional methods, the traditional skills, the traditional knowledge, the hard skills, the soft skills, but you don't turn away the technology. You blend their technology with your reality and knowledge of the past and how the technology got here in the first place and the underlying underpinning ways the technology works, and then you are a superior warrior in your own battle for independence and liberty. And you better understand that if you're embarking on a quest for personal independence and personal liberty, you're going to have to be a warrior. Much of what you crave was taken away. It was taken away through ignorance and tyranny both. And ignorance is easy to reclaim. You restore knowledge, you reclaim. But that which is taken by tyranny is never relinquished from the tyrant. It must be seized from his hand. Sounds like a really eloquent quote, but I've just made it up. Okay, But that's I really believe that. That which has been taken from you by tyranny must be seized back from the hand of the tyrant. You, 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 he will not give it to you. He's a tyrant. Tyrants don't give shit away. They keep it. We live in a police state. You don't build a police state and then decide you don't want to use it. That's not how it works. You, know, you don't build anything without using it. We built an atomic bomb. Maybe we only ever dropped two of them, but we dropped them. And you know what? We dropped more than two. Right? We set quite a few of them off just to make sure that they still worked and that they were getting bigger and more powerful and more importantly, so other people would see them go off and go, oh crap. And so did the Soviets and other nations built these things and detonated them. You don't build anything unless you have a plan to use it on some level, even the threat of it. Okay? This is the society we live in today. And if we turn our back on technology, then we're, 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 you know, We're like the, the, the gallant uh, Polish cavalry that, that you know, gave the Polish people their reputation for being so dumb. You see, there was a Polish cavalry with wooden lances that charged a tank brigade against Germany. Didn't work out very well. 
Um, the reality was that there was a lot of espionage going on, and there were some armored vehicles that were made out of basically thin wood for training purposes, and somebody got a wire crossed and decided that maybe if you told the men that's what this was, they would attack and maybe they would figure a way out, and it didn't work. So it was the, was the intent noble and gallant? Does it take a lot of courage to see any kind of mechanized machine and sit atop a horse with a wooden lance and attack it? It takes a lot, but it ain't going to work. You shoot a tank with a bazooka, at least in that period of time. Today you take it out with something like a tow missile, or at least an AT-4. I mean, a law rocket is pretty underrated, under, underpowered for what you're trying to do. An AT-4, man, you better hit right and you better get out of dodge fast, or you're going to end up with a turret swinging around on you. You might disable the vehicle, but if he spins that turret and figures out where you fired from, you're in deep crap. All right? So we use technology because that's what for lack of a better word, the enemy's using technology. But how do guerrilla forces win a war? They use the same technology and ancient technology together. They have a better understanding of the landscape and the history and the reality of what's going on. They blend in to their surroundings. They blend in with people that the enemy would call friendlies. They become unidentifiable. And they continue to advance their mission and their agenda. This is what you have to do. Now, don't be too literal. I'm not talking about actually becoming some kind of revolutionary war, you know, uh, uh, insurgent type. God forbid the day we ever have to go to that level. That means the Constitution has been set aflame. And when the Constitution has been set aflame completely and there are no, there's no recourse left, uh, through actual procedure that our republic was founded on. There's no, elections are not honored in any way, shape, or form. Guy wins and they just say, you don't win anyway, and they shoot him in the head. When stuff like that starts to happen, then the Constitution's aflame and we gotta go there. This is an analogy for today. This is how you have to live to create a pocket of self-sufficiency around yourself and around your own community and develop that. You have to be a shining beacon of liberty and at the same time, in some ways, be incognito. It's the perfect recipe. And the first thing you're going to have to do, if you really want this, and I, I know that sometimes people get tired of hearing me say this, but it's so daggone important I have to. I promise to keep my comments on it to about three minutes or less today, but you got to become debt-free. Um, other than debt on property, which has at least an underlying value that it will maintain and hold, we need to stay away from debt. There's times to take a debt on a vehicle because the vehicle enables us to do certain things and at certain times in our lives we realize that we need a vehicle that's really a new, well-kept vehicle so that we can get to work. And we have to look at that vehicle, though, like a business expense. So if we're going to finance a vehicle because we can't buy it for cash, we need to say, what is the value of this vehicle? What does this vehicle return to me and being able to get to work or deliver something to my customers or whatever that is? And we have to start analyzing that like an accountant would and just look at it a little bit differently. And if you do that, you'll find yourself spending less and getting better financing terms over shorter periods of time. Or you may even find yourself in certain unique situations leasing a vehicle, but at the same time acquiring a vehicle that you actually own and have no payments on. Okay. That's how we have to start looking at that. But, the, but every other form of debt is evil. It destroys your life, and it ties you to the very system that you're trying to extricate yourself from. It's like saying, you know what I want to do? I'm going to break out of jail. I'm going to break out of jail. But they have this chain around my ankle, 
and I'm like a dog tethered to a pin in the ground, right? And I'm going to, but I, all I got to do is get outside of the gate. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start working in the metal factory and making chain links. And I'm going to make the chain so long that I can get out of the prison and be gone. Now, let's ignore the fact that they could follow the chain and pull you back in with it. Let's say they said, fine, he wants to do that. He can do that. You're never free of the prison. You can only go so far. You're always held back. Okay? And, hell, they could hook something up to that chain, and every time you moved it, have you, have you, you do work for them. That's exactly what that is. It's a long-ass chain that makes you think you're free while you're tethered to a prison. And you've got to get out of that, or you're not going to be able to do the other things. So you have to have a plan for it. You pay off what you have. You stop spending what you don't have. That's it. There's no magic formula. I'm not even going to give you the basic debt snowball formula today. If you want that, go listen to Dave Ramsey. He says it over and over and over and over again and not much else. Okay? So I'm done on the debt. I just have to put that into this. The next thing is you have to really start looking at where you're going to live. I talked about this a lot yesterday, but, man, there's states that have taken a stance so tyrannical in opposition to individual and personal liberty that I really can't see why anybody is willing to live in them anymore. I don't care what you pay me. I can find a job outside of New York or California or Illinois uh, or Massachusetts. I mean, those are, you know, four. That, and, and I would add five to that, New Jersey. And I was born in New Jersey. You know, it's hard to completely turn your back on a place where you were born. Uh, there's Some part of me will always be a Jersey kid, you know? But I, I can't see living there. I can't see why any of you do. And there's millions and millions and millions of you that do. These states have basically said, your money is our money. Your rights are, are, are bequeathed by us, not protected by us. And you have no right to defend yourself. I mean, really, that's, that's the way that these states are headed. And by the way, we're going to destroy our own economies. We're going to destroy the pensions of all the people we've promised them to. And we're just going to tax you more while we do it. And you're going to like it. If you don't like it, tough. Well, my response is, I don't like it, tough, fine, I'm leaving. So there's certain places I'd say you got to get out of. But you have to look at it bigger than that. I think you need to be, when you're looking for where you want to stand your ground, so to speak, a place where people are already kind of moving toward this world, even without knowing it. When I used to fly all over the United States, it struck me how I could determine the affluent neighborhoods from an airplane. Whenever I could see a neighborhood from an airplane and I saw more pools than not pools, more people in that neighborhood, let's say 60% or more of that neighborhood had pools, I knew they were relatively affluent people. Not necessarily rich, but upper middle income, middle income, well-to-do, probably drove nice cars, low crime rate swimming pools. A little harder to see because they're generally not as easy to see from the air, and that may be good someday, God forbid, but gardens. I think that if you're looking for a place to live, if you can find a place where there's more houses that have gardens than don't, you're on the right track. I think you'll find that 90% of the people there are already of a predisposition to take care of themselves and look after themselves at some level and look after each other. See, if you have a garden, you have to do this thing called go outside. And when you go outside and your neighbor's outside at the same time, you sometimes do this thing called communicate with them and talk to them. And that's what we need. We need neighborhoods, again, where people talk to each other and communicate each with each other. And you're going to be able to determine, when you look at a neighborhood, whether that's the case or not. If everybody's yard looks the same, one tree, manicured grass, well-edged, 
Backyard fenced off so you can't see in. But if you do look in the backyard, maybe a swimming pool and some, some rock around it and a few little ornamental trees and nothing much else, you can probably bet that that place has a homeowner's association and you're never going to be free there. Not all the time, but you can probably bet on it. You can also probably bet that if you walk up to the average person that lives in that neighborhood, knock on their door and say, hi, I'm considering buying a home here, and I was just wondering what you think of your neighbors, they'll say, oh, they're wonderful. They keep to themselves and don't bother anyone. <sighs> Great. That means that as long as everybody obeys the rules and makes sure their grass is cut to the right height and always level, that nobody bothers anybody. If nobody parks the wrong car in the front yard, then nobody bothers anybody. But as soon as anybody breaks the rules, they're considered a troublemaker. Since they pushed all the troublemakers out with their oppressive HOA, they like everybody. And then you say, really, that's great. Who do you like here? Who do you, you know, kind of talk to? And they'll probably know the names of the people that live on both sides of them, and that's about it. And if you see like a nice house down at the end of the road, just and say, hey, who lives in that place? That place looks really nice. They'll probably go, I, I don't know. I see him once in a while, but I don't know his name. Okay, That's not where you want to live. It really isn't. That's not where you want to live. And you say, well, self-sufficient, I should be able to make it on my own. But no, you, that's not what self-sufficiency is about. Self-sufficiency is something done in percentages. Self-reliance we measure in time. This is a difference, very important difference. It seems to be not really important, but it is when you're trying to plan your life around a concept. You need to actually understand it. I know it's hard to get, but if you don't understand a concept you're building your life around, you probably won't do it right. So self-reliance is a flashlight and batteries. And if I have 10 sets of batteries, and let's say each set of batteries gives me 10 hours of light from that particular flashlight, then I have 100 hours of self-reliance in light. But it's only self-reliance. It's not self-sufficiency because eventually when the batteries don't work anymore, then I don't have light anymore. It's now gone. Self-sufficiency is if I garden and I grow all my own peppers, and I save all my pepper seeds, and I can always put pepper seeds back in the ground. If I catch enough rainwater every year to do all my irrigation, I don't rely on the grid at all. From a standpoint of peppers and peppers alone, I'm 100% self-sufficient. It's a percentage game. If I look at it from a standpoint of waste, and I build a black soldier fly uh, container, and I put all of the, the waste, like meat and scraps and things like that, that generally doesn't go into a compost facility into there, and a little bit of my compost crop, crop to keep it going, and I compost my waste, but I still have 20 or 30% of my waste that's packaging and materials and stuff I buy or whatever that I can't get rid of on site. I have to have them hauled away. Then if it's 30%, then I'm 70% self-sufficient with regard to dealing with my waste, at least that type of waste. Now, With human waste, if I have a good, well-maintained septic system, I'm 100% self-sufficient with that. If I have composting toilets, I'm 100% self-sufficient with that. If I have a sewer that I pay for, I'm 100% non-self-sufficient with that. It's not necessarily bad. Remember, I'm not saying we get rid of technology. I'm just saying we have to look at that reality. So when we, as soon as we skin the cat that self-reliance is time-related, Then we realize that the more people around us that are self-reliant, the more we can work together, the greater the time quotient becomes. Because if I have batteries that are rechargeable and you have a generator and I have a battery backup system but you don't, you and I as neighbors can work together and greatly extend the lifetime of both of our systems. And the more people we add like that, the greater the extension of our self-reliance time becomes. 
Self-sufficiency works the same way. If you grow 100% of your own tomatoes and I grow 100% of my own peppers, it's almost inevitable that to grow 100%, you're going to have to grow 150% or more. Now if I have two people living next to each other that each specialize in something and they can barter and exchange surplus, the self-sufficiency of both individual households increases. It doesn't decrease, it increases. We often hear people say, hey, if I put together this really great prepper community, right, like, and we're well-stocked and we have guns and gear and all the equipment we need, and we have like 10 people that say they're going to work together, and they, they, we pre-stock stuff, and we have the ability to grow food, we store food, to, to, to do all this great stuff, the only worry we have is that some of our members will bring people with them when they come. Let me tell you what would happen in a true breakdown scenario. The place like that, As soon as like the whole concept of we're going to fight it out wore off and you realize the reality you're in, people like that would begin to recruit people of value to come be with them. Anybody that's physically able to do anything and wants to be part of the group would be recruited. Now, so that doesn't mean some people wouldn't show up and, and be terminal with a case of the dumbass and be sent packing, but in reality you would be recruiting and growing a group like that. Right? How do I know that? Because every town that's ever been established has followed that pattern to become a ghost town. So we need to make community part of our plan, and that blends right in with the location. Because you don't want a community of assholes. You really don't. And I'm telling you that a lot of our suburban neighborhoods have become communities of assholes by design. See, the people that live there really aren't assholes. But they've been put into a, a, a environment where the only logical result is they're going to behave like assholes towards each other. See, the guy that has his lawn all manicured, right, it's only one in ten of those guys that really are like that, that are out there with freaking snips clipping that one blade of grass until the next mowing, right? It's very few people that really are like that. But they're, they're living that way because it's expected. So as soon as somebody else doesn't do it, like, why do I have to do it if he doesn't have to do it? And the, the response isn't, I don't, it's he does. That's in their mind. So they start worrying about shit that really doesn't affect them. Why does he have that old truck parked in his driveway? I know if I had that old truck parked in my driveway, somebody would bitch about it. I don't like the way that old truck looks. Right? It's none of your business. It's his driveway. He wants to park a truck there, he can park a truck there. Right? But these, this environment we've created, Of people that live 100% from the supermarket, they work, they go home, take their kids to activities, they work, they go home, they go to the country club for recreation. This entire, they have rules on top of rules on top of rules. They, they're so in need of rules, regulation, and control, they actually form an additional branch of government to oversee their lives called an HOA. I want you to realize that about people that have HOAs by choice. What they've said, is a federal government intruding in our lives, a state government intruding in our lives, a county government intruding in our lives, a city government intruding in our lives. All of those layers of government intruding in our lives and taxing us at every opportunity that they have isn't sufficient. I'd like some more, please. Let's form our own and have additional rules in addition to all these rules from these four primary layers of government that already exist. Let's, let's, do, let's do more then all of this government that we're already paying too much for is doing. And then, then I know, here's a great idea. Let's all have to pay dues 
and another tax that will self-assess to enforce the rules that we have set because the all, all the rules that were already set weren't sufficient to make us happy. You live around people like that, and you start to realize that they're assholes. You have nobody to blame but yourself. Why the hell are you doing it? And I can say the same with states like New York and Illinois. You know, the federal government has already shoved all this crap down our throat, rules, regulations, and taxes, and you guys go, that's not enough. We need some more. I'd like some more oppression, please. And let's, let's, let's pay for it. Great. So that has to be part of what you're doing. When I was looking for property, the real estate agent that we used had to be taken to the woodshed a few times. Because she would start saying, well, I don't know if you, I, I, I called the agent and there's some people around there that may not be the kind of people you want to live next to. And she started describing it. I go, that's me. This exact, what do you mean? That's, well, they have this old truck that's always parked at the end of the driveway. It's like an 18 wheeler. The guy's retired. He hasn't sold it yet. And it just sits there and it doesn't look very nice. I'm like, good. So when I park a tractor at the end of my driveway, he won't bitch. But th this is, The mentality that we live in. This is the world we're living in today, where people are more concerned about what other people are doing than themselves. And what we need to do is switch that dynamic to where people are more concerned with helping others than helping themselves. Because here's what happens. If you start to help other people in your community, all of a sudden you become valued, and you get this overflow back of willingness to assist and help you. It's basic karmic law. Whether you believe in that or not, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not, because it works. I talked to one, I can't, I can't remember the comedian, I think it's that Borat guy, right? This one guy I talked to, young guy up in Vermont. I said, well, the government, this and the government guy, he goes, I don't believe in the government. He does it quotes. I don't believe in the government. There isn't the government, you know, and I'm like, well, it doesn't matter if you believe in the government. The government believes in you. So it doesn't matter if you believe in karmic law or not. Karmic law applies to you. Univers you can call it universal energy. You can take from any organized faith you want to, or you can use a physics level explanation, but this is a reality. When you do things in a positive Uh, motivation and a positive output, especially in an environment where it's received well, it always comes back with greater than it's put out because it magnifies as it goes through the system. The impact that you have in interacting with one person actually impacts multiple individuals, so there's multiple re return points for that to come back to you. I don't want to get metaphysical or anything with it because you don't have to. It's just how it works. And the only thing required to make that work is that you're in a place where it's well-received. If you try to go to an artsy-fartsy, upper-crusty, nobody-talks-to-anybody neighborhood and start helping your neighbors put in gardens, it's not going to be well-received. They don't like gardens. They probably have a rule against them, specifically in the front yard. And God forbid that that one tree you plant in the middle of your little postage-stamp suburban lot should have apples in it that would fall on the ground and make a mess. Okay, that's not the place to go do this stuff. But if you find the right place to do this stuff, the more you do, the better it gets for you. I'm not saying you can't be a rebel and go do it successfully somewhere. People have done it. But boy, it's harder that way. Boy, it's harder that way. Maybe it's better to be a rebel on the edge, the transitional edge, where it's not quite so lock, stock, and barrel the other direction. I mean, the, the best example I can give of somebody doing it in a place where you wouldn't think it would work would be like the urban farming guys, but they're just going in and buying houses in neighborhoods nobody gives a shit about. 
um, and completely changing the entire landscape, buying places that are so cheap you can buy two houses, knock one to the ground, without a mortgage, by the way, knock one to the ground, salvage a lot of parts from it to rehab the other, connect the two yards together and have a bigger yard, and then bring other people in to buy the next house over because they're buying houses for ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 in the inner city of Kansas City. I don't want to live that way, but God bless them for doing it. I sure sell support what they're doing. So it can be done anywhere. That brings me kind of my next point today. We all need to be homesteaders, no matter where you live. With the exception of, I understand, if you live in an apartment, you can only do so much homesteading on a balcony. Okay, And, and I would tell you that for long-term self-sufficiency, you need a castle to defend. You, you need property that you own. All this crap about, well, you know, you're better off renting, property's a bad investment today. It's gonna, I, Listen, listen. There will always be some sort of an economy. There will be always be a way for people to earn money. There will always be a way for people to conduct commerce with each other. There will always be that because there always has. From the first time somebody with a sack of grain met somebody with a sack of meat, there's been commerce. It's not going away. And that does that mean you should just feel comfortable going out when you make $50,000 a year and your wife makes 24 part-time buying a $500,000 house because that's the trendy area and that's what everybody else is doing? No. No, it doesn't. But it does mean if you buy sensible and you have enough cash in reserves to pay for that property for at least six months if you lose your income and, and get through that period of time, that you are in pretty good shape and you'll probably be able to figure out how to keep it no matter what. Now, that's what it means. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard reality there. And if you're doing a lot of the things that we're talking about on the show day to day, by reducing your debt, reducing so if the only debt's the house, all of a sudden this all gets easier. If you don't sit on $80,000 worth of student loan debt so long you should call it a pet and give it a name. If you don't have three cars or two cars with mortgages on the cars equal to what you could have bought a house for. If you have two, if you have two cars that cost over $30,000, you could have bought a house for $60,000. Now, there's not a lot of great houses for $60,000. I'll admit that. I'm just saying you could have bought a house somewhere. I'll find you one. I don't care what state you live in. I will find you a $60,000 house that you could live in if you had to. I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying that's where you should set your budget. I'm just trying to put it in perspective for you. Because there's a lot of families out there saying they're dead broke, they can barely get by, it's tough to get along, and they have two cars that are $40,000 each. And they're paying off $80,000 on essentially a five-year mortgage against a declining, depreciating value in a vehicle. I'm just suggesting maybe that $80,000 would be better off applied to real property with better financing terms, lower interest rates, tax deductions, and all of those things, and drive a couple cheap cars. It might make more sense. And if you do it long enough and you want a nice car, then you can go out and buy a nice car. So you buy things with money, you finance things with debt. If you go out and get a car tomorrow and you get a little book and you have to make 60 payments of $450 each, you did not buy a car. You financed a car. And you financed an asset that will depreciate in value. Your home may go up in value, may go down in value, or may go sideways in value. But it may go up. And there's a lot of things you can do to force it to go up. Your car will go down in value. It is absolutely the financing of a depreciating asset. And everything else that we finance in this world is a depreciating asset, even your college education. There, I said it, yes. You were thinking that's the one that goes up in value. No, it doesn't. It does. Your, your college education does not increase in value. You say, well, the person with a bachelor's degree and 10 years of experience is worth more than the person with a bachelor's degree. 
you are correct. Ding, ding, ding. But why? Is it because of the bachelor's degree or the 10 years of experience? The experience is the appreciating asset, which you're paid to acquire. The degree is the depreciating asset, because then we have some employers go, 10 years, eh? Bachelors, eh? Why didn't you ever go for your master's? And then you want me to prove it's a depreciating asset? Get a bachelor's degree. Work outside of the field for five years. It will be harder for you to find a job many times in your field than the new graduate. The value of your degree has depreciated because you haven't added anything to it with experience. We're financing a depreciating asset. Financing a depreciating asset should be a last choice when it's deemed necessary, i.e., I drive 100 miles a day. I need a new car, not a used piece of crap. Can't afford to do that. But I'm going to buy a cheap new car with a good warranty. Right? Or maybe even lease one. Because I'm going to see it as a business component of my income stream, not as a status symbol. And well, if I want a status symbol, then I have to earn that. But it's when we move into the world of homesteading that all of this stuff becomes much more enabled. If you can get yourself onto an acre, do it. An acre can do so much for you. To me, an acre, the, the American dream shouldn't be a two-tenths of an acre lot in a nice subdivision with a pool in the backyard, fences, and an HOA, and a bunch of neighbors that all look like they came from the Stefford Wives. That should not be the... That should be... Today, that should be the American nightmare. If you're there, your entire life should be dedicated to extricating yourself from it at this time. Because that dream is about to become a nightmare for those people. They are not prepared for the shift in society that's coming. No, not everything's going away. No, not everybody will end up at the bottom. But shifts are coming and a lot of people at the top are going to the middle. And a lot of people in the middle are going almost to the bottom. And if you're not prepared to adapt with it, the psychological aspects alone are going to be insurmountable. To me, the American dream is an acre. An acre to do with as you please. With an acre, I can put in a tenth of an acre garden, and I still have nine-tenths of an acre, less the footprint of the house, let's say eight-tenths of an acre. A tenth of an acre garden can grow more food than most people can process and deal with. Especially if you grow only the things that do well where you are. And you take the surplus and you use them for barter, exchange, and you know what? You don't always have to get something directly for your, your surplus in your community. If you can up more stuff than you can use or dehydrate more stuff than you can use, take it to your neighbors and give it to them. Don't worry about what comes back. Barter is for times of need. In the time of surplus, share. Because what you're going to get is interaction with that person and development of the community, which is what you really want anyway. People that you can depend on. People that you can rely on. People that will start asking questions so that you can answer them. Right? But with, the, with an acre, I can do that. I can easily, easily run a, a, a flock of chickens. I mean, no worries, no problems. And, I, yeah, it's probably better that I buy some feed instead of try to pasture 100% of a flock of laying hens like that. But, you know, I can buy a lot of seed to plant forage for them, and I can buy a lot of feed, and I can do that for a lot less than the cost of buying eggs at a store when I amateurize it over time. And a lot of what I do can be, you know, recycled. And that, that little, uh, uh, tub that I've built for black soldier fly that deals with all of the meat waste and things that I normally couldn't compost now is turned into, guess what? Black soldier fly larva, which is excellent feed for my chickens. So I can have that little flock of chickens that provides me more eggs than I can use and probably give away to a few neighbors. 
in a small little shed or something, I can put in some rabbits or some quail and produce some meat. Now, I got meat and I got eggs. And this is just an acre. I haven't even begun to use it yet. I can put in some, some perennial trees along the fence line strategically and distributed throughout. I can put in a tenth of an acre pond to grow fish on an acre. And, and at this point, with everything I've described, I still have more land left to work with than the average suburban lot. And the average suburban lot can produce a couple tons of food if managed properly. So I can add a couple more tons of food to that if I want to. You know, I mean... To me, that is what we should be striving for. That's If I was developing subdivisions and communities, my minimum lot size would be an acre. And I would honestly prefer for it to be about an acre and a half. That gives everybody a good acre to manage and some buffer between their neighbors so they can start. And I'm not talking about a prepper community or survival community. I'm not about a resilient. I'm not about any damn thing here. I'm just talking about smart land development. I mean, that's the type of place people would want to live. You're spread out, but yet everybody can still see each other. Everybody can still interact with each other. Everybody can still help each other out. It's a great way to live. I live in a community just like this in Pennsylvania. Our home in Pennsylvania was on just over as like 1.03 acres or something like that. Everybody around us had somewhere between an acre and maybe three. Everybody knew each other. You walk around, everybody said hello to each other. It was a great community. It was a great place. There was one turd. There always seems to be a turd. If we could figure out how to get rid of the one turd in most neighborhoods, I think we could turn them around a big time just from that. But everybody should be homesteading. And if you say, well, I can't get an acre. That sounds great, but I just can't do it where I live and with whatever. One, be careful what you say you can't do because you might prove yourself right if you keep saying it long enough. If you start saying you can do it, you'll start saying, well, that doesn't make sense. I can do it, but I haven't done it yet. That must mean I haven't figured out how. And you might start asking the actual question, how do I do this? How do I get this done? How do I adapt to this? How? What do I have to sacrifice? Is it worth it? All of a sudden, you start. the mind gets engaged, you find a solution. But even if you end up with, you know what, I've got a quarter acre, that's what I got, fine. Homestead there. Do whatever you can. Well, I can't have chickens, fine. Put some quail in your garage. One guy that's going to be on the show in a couple months, or maybe a month from now, right? He raises thousands of quail in a one-car garage. The neighbor doesn't even know they're there. Figure out what you can do in homestead. Start producing for yourself. I mean, that's to get through what's coming, that's going to be so valuable. And let me tell you what's valuable about it. It's not just the direct return. It's not just the knowledge so you can do even more later. It's the knowledge that you'll be able to give to people when they realize they need it too. Because this whole country is going to collectively begin to wake up with some of the harsh reality that's coming. And the people that say, hey, look, let me show you how you can do this too. You know, here's a couple birds to start your own flock with. This is what they need. This is how to get, this is where to get food. This is what you can provide for them. This is what you have to get from somewhere else. This is, think of how valuable that is in a transitional society. And we're going to transition to a more agrarian society for a couple reasons. One, we're stressing the environment to a point where there's not enough resources to continue to do business as usual. And people want stuff. So they're going to adapt. So one of the ways you can adapt to reductions in supply is to provide some of your own so you have more of the stuff called money to buy what's still available and take pressure off the supply line system and pressure off your own financial system to acquire it. So that's one reason. But the other reason is... And what you've seen collectively over the past 50 years is people turn their back on this type of thing with this constant yearning and looking over their shoulder going, hey, that was pretty cool. I remember when. And as you see people start to do it again, and there's people that love to be urbanites, right? And they're never going to change, and that's fine. 
But the majority of people, they're not really assholes. Again, like I said, they've been conditioned to behave like assholes. They don't really want bigger government. They've been conditioned to believe that they want bigger government. As you start to have more and more people kind of shine a liberty light around doing these things, more and more people start, you know what I get? The number, how did you do that? When people see my cards, how did you do that? Why, why does yours look so great? And, and this one here just blah, I just won't, you know, what, what's the secret? People want to know because when you do it, it feels good. It's a natural human behavior to cultivate. We're cultivators by nature. We cultivate cultures. We cultivate fields. We cultivate forests. That's what we do. It's who we are. So, yeah, we're going to become more agrarian because it's what we really are. And this massive onslaught of technology has buried us from that. But we're starting to realize that, you know what, you only get so much of a fix from the latest technology or gadget. And, and then there's still something missing. And people are starting to really come back in a very positive way. And they're starting to bring the technology with them. And I'm not talking about GMOs here. I'm talking about ways to automate irrigation, ways to automate multiple things, ways to analyze things and know what's best to plant in what spot. Taking permaculture from some hippie ideal that it was in the 70s and today in 2013, it's an advanced design science that can be used to design an ecosystem or a business. It's going to happen because, because we're going to need it. Because people like it, and I'll tell you the truth, the biggest reason it's going to happen, more and more people are figuring this out, as, as they apply modern thought to older techniques, it works better. It works better. About the only thing that the industrial ag can say today that they do well is grow about four different grains and great big fields with mechanical harvesting. There's nothing else they can say that they can even make a case using their own propaganda and lies that they do better. And sooner or later, we can mitigate even that. But there's a lot more to life than four different grains. And for now, we can focus on that. But everybody, I think, needs to be a homesteader. We need to build hard skills and soft skills and technical skills in everybody. Our kids should be coming out of high school today with more than just the ability to do their homework in a PowerPoint presentation. Every kid that comes out of high school today should be learning some basic database and PHP and things like that. Basic blogging skills, back-end stuff. Right? This, this is a new means of communication. Not knowing how to blog by 2025, will be like not knowing how to use a telephone in 1980. It, it, it's going to be that integral to what you're doing. Every person with a brand is going to have a blog. And, and it's almost there already, but people are going to start realizing you need a brand that don't know they need a brand yet. So we need that, but you still need to, right? You need to know how to do two times two, four plus seven, right? And, and you just went... Oh, I know that, right? I said two times two, and you said four. And I said four plus seven, and in your mind, you immediately said 11. You learned it 30 years ago. It's still there. That's what the, the, the hard skills need to be in us. Maybe I'm not out every day changing a tire, but I know how. Or know how to plug a tire, right? Or know the basics of how an engine works. Or how to start a fire. I mean, with a match, guys, I'm telling you, I'm, when we get to Texas... I'm finally going to do it. I know I'm going to deal with a million armchair ass cracks that are going, if you were a real survivalist, you'd be rubbing two sticks together. But I'm going to do a video on how to start a fire with a match. With a match. Because so many people don't know how. I'm talking grown men to teenage kids and Boy Scouts that I've seen try to start a fire. 
and you just look and you just look and you just wonder why why are you doing that why why are you putting a bunch of sticks in there that yes are thin but yet when you bend them they don't crack you know what what which, why are you not following the process and then you know they become convinced they need some kind of starter fluid or something and you just start putting it together and by the time they get back with whatever their plan was you go woof right it just roars up and you start adding bigger and all of a sudden it's burning and they're like wow right we need to know how to start a fire right we need to know how to do all of these skills that's that's the that's the big push behind 13 skills hard skills with some technical skills as well but we need soft skills we need to know how to tell stories again do you realize that the number one thing if you said to me jack what's the number one thing that's made you successful with the survival podcast I'd have a little bit different of an answer than I do with overall in life. Overall in life, it's when presented with the decision to do something or nothing, I always do something, and if I screw it up, oh, well, I learned how not to do it, and I just keep trying. I never get to a point in my life where I have an impasse and choose to not act. That would be the number one. But in the survival podcast, the number one thing that's made me successful with it, and that has made me an independent person that calls my own shots, is the ability to tell a story that people want to listen to. Now, if you had a kid that was six years old and you said, what do you want to learn to do when you grow up? And they said, I want to be able to tell stories. Most adults would say, oh, that's nice, Johnny. You need to think about you know, having a professional career like being an engineer or something like that. Why? So you can work for somebody for the rest of your life? That person that tells stories could have a career like mine. They could have a career writing stories as an author. There's many things that they could do. There's just so much. We can come from being able to tell a great story, um, a screenplay writer, right? I mean, a novelist. And people say, well, there's not a great career in writing. There is for those who are gifted at it. And the person might have to fail as a storyteller four or five times to find their niche. But that doesn't mean that it's not a great life. It doesn't mean that it might actually not lead to something totally different. The, one of the reasons I was very successful as a salesperson, when that was my lifestyle, was I could tell stories, and I could interact with people. I remember one guy that worked for a company called Graybar, big distributor, and we had always wanted to run as many events as we could with Graybar counter days and different all kinds of stuff, right? And this guy never, never ran events. I mean, he was called the event Nazi by the sales reps that I went in with. They said, don't even bother. Just, you know, try to get a stocking order out of the guy or whatever. And we sit down, and I look, and on his table is a picture of his kids in a very small frame toward the back of his desk and very prominently displayed him playing with his Siberian Husky. The time I had Lakota, my Siberian Husky, who I dearly loved. And Siberian Huskies are unique dogs. They have unique characteristics, personalities, and things like that. And I knew we had that in common. So we started talking about it. And I told him stories about my dog. He told me stories about his dog. We talked for over 30 minutes. We never talked business. All we did was talk about the dogs. We were about ready to leave. And he said, hey, we didn't really get much done. It was good meeting you, though. What, is there anything I could do for you? And I said, you know, I, I understand you don't like to run events or anything, but I think it would be really cool if we could do something here with your people to get them more informed, expose our brand to your customers, and make, every, make it something everybody can have a good time with. He said, get your guys to put something together and send it to me, and we'll do something. And we walked out, and the sales rep that I was with just stood there with just a gasp, going, I've tried to do this for 10 years. Nobody gets an event with it. This guy doesn't do this. He considers it a disruption. I said, that's because everybody comes in, 
and talks business. I went in and talked about what mattered to him. And when he heard what mattered to him, he cared about what mattered to me. That's storytelling. That's why it's a skill that we need to develop as people. right? We teach our children to not tell stories. Because it's fibbing. It's lying. right? And there's a place for that. I mean, you know Johnny coming in and telling you the aliens took his homework. Right? Actually, you prefer that because you know he's lying. That's much more believable than I forgot I had the assignment, right? So as long as Johnny's telling you the aliens ate his homework, we're in good shape because we can deal with that. But we don't want to teach our children to lie, but we don't want to drive the creativity and the creative process and the fantasy out of them because the fantasy leads to stories that teach us more about reality than often reality itself will. And, you know, I, I think it's something that we really need to do holistically. I talked a lot about homesteading. Also, you might wonder, well, how does food storage fit into this perfectly? Perfectly. There are foods that you're not going to grow in your backyard, even on your beautiful one acre or beautiful ten acres in any quantity. Or if you do, they're going to take so much time and energy and resources, it doesn't make sense. This would be things like wheat. Those of you that like bread and like wheat, wheat is cheap. You can go to Honeyville Grains right now and buy a 50-pound sack of wheat and have it shipped to your front door for about $48. And they'll do a flat-rate shipping, and if you're an MSB member, they'll give you 10% off. Do you know how much wheat you have to grow, how much threshing you have to do, how much effort you have to do, how much ground you have to give up to produce a 50-pound sack of wheat? Don't grow wheat. If you want wheat, buy it. I would say in many instances the same thing about rice, but I think small-scale rice production in the right environment like what Ben Falk does up in Vermont can be really cool and really useful and produce a really high-quality product. But if you want it in volume, I'd still say buy it. There's a lot of things like that. And what food storage does is it brings the self-reliance component in touch with the self-sufficiency quotient. So if I have 50% self-sufficiency with food, only 50%, but I have self-reliance to go for six months with food, the two combined together give me not a year, but a year and a half. And I'm not going to work out the math with you today, but if I can produce 50% of what I need throughout most of the year with four-season gardening, using greenhouses, whatever i got to do to do it, 50% throughout the year, and I have a one-year supply of food, I end up with a year and a half to almost two years of self-sufficiency depending on what I do, or self-reliance depending on what I do. So they very much blend together. And this is true of everything we do with disaster preparedness, with energy. Right? I just did a show on this, but you know, food, shelter, water, energy, security, and sanitation and health. Those all fit the same thing. Whatever we're storing or building up or creating the skill sets to be able to provide for ourselves in those arenas, they all interlock. The problem with most Americans, with most developed countries today, and even undeveloped countries, is people have lost this concept of building a net versus a line. Most people run their entire lifestyle as a single fishing line. You got A connected to B connected to C in a linear format. And if any one of those places break, the whole thing falls apart. It's all contingent upon dad keeping his job. Dad loses his job, everything falls, not just one or two things. Where if you start to build this as an interweb, A is connected to B, C, D, F, and E, right? And E is connected to G, H, I, J, K, and L. And L is connected back, see, like that. 
When you start to build these interconnections, so we have storage of this, storage of that, a plan for this, a plan for that, the ability to produce this, the ability to produce that, the ability to barter for this, a neighbor that does that other thing. We can work, do this type of work, and our neighbor can do that type of work, and we can exchange that. We start to build our lives that way, and one string breaks, we go, yeah, I've got to mend the net. I'm not happy about the hole in the net, but it's one string or two strings. I can have a net with four or five strings, and I can still catch a buttload of fish with it. That's the way we need to be building our lives in the modern age. Integrating technology, accepting the fact that the modern person has become an idiot that wants bigger government, and saying we have to define for ourselves what we want, find the area and environment conducive to as much of that as possible, and build our lives there, and start practicing it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. If there's something we want to do, we need to go ahead and do it, and then if anybody comes after us for it, try to defend that, it's easier than going out and asking permission to do it first. And that's kind of what I want to finish up with today is I believe that in some areas it's time for us to go on the offensive and maybe not in some others that we don't need to be in people's face with everything that we want done, but it's time for us to stop just, you know, putting in a garden and then defending somebody's ability to tell us we have to take it away because it's in a front yard and somebody doesn't like it. It's time for us to stop with the Second Amendment just saying that, hey, we don't want any more gun laws. Maybe it's time to start out and go out and start repealing some that it's time in some areas for us to say, you know what, we've had enough of this shit, we're not taking it anymore. That maybe we need to be dividing the enemy in some level so that it's not always they're attacking and we're defending. We need to start going around and do some flanking maneuvers and fighting back. We need to start looking for more, uh, more you know, especially at the local and state level, food sovereignty. Right, The right of, of, of the farmers in our state, not just the homestead in our state, but the farmer in our state, to conduct business in certain ways and not be interfered with by corporate interests. We need to take this fight right straight down the throat of the very people bringing it at us. We've been taking this shit for over a 100 years, and I'm frankly tired of it. And on one level, we can be peaceable and we can build these little pockets in our own lives, but collectively, we need to start returning fire here. And if we do that balanced approach, we'll start to build a better society. But that's the long, that's why I'm only just talking about this a little bit at the end today. That's the long-term horizon goal. That's, that's what we want to achieve on a grand scale. But the focus needs to be the individual and community layer. That's where we need to be building this stuff. And I want you to take away from today this concept. Society's evolving. Technology's evolving. We're moving forward. We're not going to move backwards. All right, guys. Well, you know, sorry to kind of cut the end that way, but I, I don't know any other way to get these new songs of the day into these rewinds without just kind of picking up one and going, that's good enough, Jack. We can stop you. That was, that was six years ago. People have heard enough. <laughs> Let's hear something from the day. So, uh, again, this week we're doing songs on parenting, and we're going back into the realm of country western. It seems like there's a lot of country music on this topic. Uh, and I mean, you know, family as a whole has always been a, a heavy topic of country music. This is by an artist that he's, he's all right. Um, he's got some other songs that are okay. I, I would kind of put him in the category generally of like pop country, uh, pop country from the nineties, but in, and, and maybe early 2000, but still pop country. And this song in a way is, but it's also a very moving song. And for me, it's a very meaningful song. The song is by Brad Paisley, and it's called Half the Dad. Uh, as many of you know, I am a stepfather. And this song's kind of always spoke to what it's like to be a stepfather. One of the things I've always tried to explain to people about becoming a stepdad 
is that you actually have to earn the title of dad. It, 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 is, it is different in that way, that not only do you have to make a willing choice to become a father to a child, you have to do a good enough job that at some point that child turns around and calls you dad. And that's a pretty big day when it happens. Now, I guess if you do it where the kid is young enough and only ever knows you as dad, that's, that's easy. But when you step into a kid's life seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in that range or older, and they know full well you are not their father by birth, especially when they have known their father, uh, good or bad, whether that man is a good man, a bad man, a, a, you know, okay man, whatever, it doesn't matter. You're still not him. And I'm sure for stepmothers, it's the same way. You're not her. And it takes a long time to truly earn that to where that kid feels like you are a father to them. And you have to do that job for a long time before you get the title. Like I think many things in life really work that way. And I have to tell you something here. Part of why I decided to bring this song on the air this week wasn't just because of, of how it fits for me. You know, it was pretty cool to me, especially like when my son put together a mix of songs for uh, his wedding. And one of the songs he had played at his wedding was this song. That was a pretty pretty cool acknowledgement. So there's a lot of reasons I'd bring this up. But there's another one, and it's less to do with me, though it is. it, it does have to do with some of the, or I'd say one of the biggest insults I've ever been had hurled at me in my life. But, you know, I'm a big boy. I can take being insulted. Um, my concern here is that I bring awareness to this so it's not hurled at others who have, have done this, knowing how difficult it can be to do. Um, I have been told on more than one occasion, fortunately this has always been online because I, I, I'd like to believe that I wouldn't revert to the violent person I was in my 20s, but if somebody said this to my face, I just might. That you don't know what it is to be a real father if you're a stepfather. That somehow you're less of a dad because the child that you fathered wasn't born to you with your blood. Um, I will tell you something about blood. You want to talk about boiling. Absolute boiling blood. To have some egotistical prick challenge how much love you have and devotion you have for a son that you chose to raise. That unlike the show, the song we had yesterday, uh, arms wide open, where it was kind of hurled upon you, but you had every opportunity to say, "This isn't something that I, I choose to do," and yet you chose to do it anyway and do the hard work. I mean, honestly, somebody that says that, I do believe the reason people say shit that stupid is because we live in a social media world. There is a place where there's things people will say on Twitter or Facebook they will not say to somebody's face because they know they're going to get bitch slapped. And I'd like to believe that I would be a better man and say, you know what, I'm sorry you feel that way. I didn't know you were stupid. Please get out of my face. But there is a, there is a possibility that that would have honed in on something uh, that would have got somebody at least popped in the mouth. Being a stepfather is the most difficult and most rewarding thing that I've ever done in my life. And those of you that know people who have done that, again, stepmothers as well, and stepped up and, and done it fully and wholly with all of their heart and all of their soul, let me just tell you, have respect for those people. Have an appreciation for those people because 
It's, it, it's again, it's not easy. It, it's not easy to have a kid that you know is your son. I'm sure by blood tell you I hate you, and every parent deals with that. But I hate you, and you're not my real dad. When you have done everything that you possibly can for that child, that cuts deep. And what you do is you love them anyway, and you keep doing the job. And eventually, you know, if you do the job right, it all comes back to you, and it's all worth it. And when you see then your son stand up and do the same thing, it's a very, very proud moment. For those of y'all that don't know, I am an ordained minister. Anybody can be one, by the way. I'm not like a special ordained minister. You can become an ordained minister like me. Um, I do that because I believe in liberty and freedom, and I don't believe that any group of people should have privileges that other groups of people don't. I think we should all have equality as much as possible. And since I can have all of the, the rights and privileges of a minister by filling out a form, I chose to do it. Um, and as such, I officiated the wedding of my son and my daughter-in-law. And being able to stand up at the front of that chapel and preside over the marriage of my son and then my daughter-in-law, who became, you know, by law anyway, part of my family at that point, and have them bring uh, my grandson, who is now my, you know, my, if you want to call it my step-grandson and my son's stepson, up as part of the ceremony, the same way we did with him, that's when you're like, you know what, I may not have gotten everything right, but I did this right. So that's why this song's always meant a lot to me. And, and those of you who have been stepfathers, I thank you, and stepmothers, I thank you for your service that way, because it, it's a job that so often needs doing. Those of you that had step-parents who were good parents, don't forget once in a while to, to reach out to them and, and thank them for taking that step. I know that as you become family, it becomes as assumed as blood relation. And that's great. That means it worked. But, you know, I can tell you that it means something when you hear it. So it might be worth hearing once in a while. And those of you that, that know people who have done this, I'm going to say that there is a special slap in the face waiting for you in life if you ever insinuate that someone who has by choice dedicated themselves to another person didn't mean it when they did it and doesn't understand the, the, the bond. Because I have known plenty of parents who share the same blood as their kid that are shitty parents. But that blood doesn't mean anything about it. In fact, I know two of them. They're both older than me, and I came out of one of them. And from another. So you can say all you want about the bond of blood, but I can tell you that good people bond with or without the blood. And that is just something I felt like saying in today's episode and today's uh, rewind. Anyway, I don't want to get too deep with you, but uh, we will be back with one more song on parenting tomorrow. With that, it's been Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. When a single mom goes out on a date with somebody new, it always winds up feeling more like a job interview. My mama used to wonder if she'd ever meet someone who wouldn't find out about me and then 
turn around and run. I met the man I call my dad when I was five years old. He took my mom out to a movie, and for once I got to go. A few months later, I remember lying there in bed. I overheard him pop the question, and I prayed that she'd say yes. And then, all of a sudden, oh, it seemed so strange to me how we went from something's missing to a family. Looking back, all I can say about all the things he did for me. I hope I'm at least half the dad that he didn't have to be. I met the girl that's now my wife about three years ago. We had the perfect marriage, but we wanted something more. Now here I stand, surrounded by our family and friends, crowded round the nursery window as they bring the baby in. And now all of a sudden, oh, it seems so strange to me how we've gone from something's missing to family. Looking through the glass, I think. About the man standing next to me. And I hope I'm at least half the dad that he didn't have to be. Looking back, all I can say about all the things he did for me. I hope I'm at least half the day that he didn't have to be. Yeah, I hope I'm at least half the day. Because he didn't have to be.